Throughout our series in Mark, which comes to a close today, we've asked the question, who is this Jesus? Drawing from the wisdom of C.S. Lewis, we press the question, is he a liar? Is he lunatic? Or is he Lord? Did he make the whole thing up? Was he a liar? Was he convinced of something that wasn't true? Was he a lunatic? Or is it all, is it all real? Coming to bear upon you right now, he is a Lord. Every word he said was true. Every miracle he performed was purposeful. And he is alive today. Who is this Jesus? We're going to look at the story of Pilate in the penultimate chapter of the Gospel of Mark. But first I want to give some context. And I want to address a common question that's very important. In the Gospel of Mark, there's a 16th chapter. And we have studied the first eight verses of that chapter. But if you look closely at your Bible, given its formatting, you might notice that there's something different about it. For example, the English Standard Version, the ESV, which is the, the, uh, one, of the, one of the versions we preach from most commonly at Highlands Community Church, there's like this, it's, it's given in brackets and there's this disclaimer. Or you may see it rendered in italics. Or there may be a footnote in the New King James. Or if you have the King James, it's presented unqualified. But this closing of the Gospel of Mark is somewhat questionable in its authenticity as to whether or not it was originally inspired because the most, the, the most aged manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Mark do not include these verses. When monks were transcribing the Word of God in order to preserve it, through the Dark Ages, and by the way, by extension, they preserved literacy itself. They took such great pains and such ceremonial care that when they would write the name Yahweh, they would go and become ceremonially clean and change their robes and get a new writing utensil and write it, and then, once again, become ceremonially clean and come back to their work. That's how meticulous, that's how carefully the Word of God has been preserved. There's no other ancient document that was preserved with such care. There are several hundred, there are about 900 ancient manuscripts that do include this, what's called the extended ending of the Gospel of Mark. But, and, and they're very close to the, to the oldest that we have, but most ancient manuscripts do not include these verses. So there's a chance that these were added on as a, a, to, to preserve an oral tradition that is believed to be inspired. Uh, there's also, and hopefully this is not the case, that uh, the possibility this was added on through spurious means. There are some verses in some translations that are missing in others. Most notably, the King James seems to have verses that others don't have. Or if you flip the rubric, you could say that, for example, the NIV takes verses out of the Bible, which is not a fair statement to make. Rather, there were some things included in the King James that are not found in the original Greek. I don't mean to sound disrespectful to the King James. It's a beautiful translation. It was fantastic work. But there are verses that were added in by Erasmus, a Catholic scribe working under a deadline to beat a competitor and under pressure from a Vatican. For example, 1 John 5, verses 7 and 8. It's not in the original Greek. Erasmus said, if I can find an ancient manuscript that will include these words, I will add these words. And the reason that 1 John 5, 7, and 8 is different in the King James and every other translation is that, quite mysteriously, 
Erasmus was given a manuscript that included the very words that the Vatican Council demanded. Every football team in America praised the Lord's Prayer verbatim, which may not be quite what it was for, but that's okay. And they always end it with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Beautiful doxology. Beautiful thing to say. Right? Perfectly within the will of God to pray. Not actually in the original Greek manuscripts. There are two basic schools of thought around this. Right? Whether you deal with the Textus Recepticus or the, or the Nestle. Right? Personally, I've, I've found that the Westcott Hort collection of ancient Greek manuscripts has been very reliable. That's where many of our translations draw from. There are some translations that, that don't use this Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. The reason I believe the Septuagint is just as inspired as the Old Testament itself is that when Jesus would quote the Old Testament, he would quote verbatim the words of the Septuagint. And so Jesus' use of the Septuagint, again, that is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. When Jesus used the Septuagint, to me, Jesus' use of it proves that it's inspired, proves that it is reliable as a biblical text. There are some translations that use the Septuagint and some that do not. This is part of the reason for different schools of thought on translation. There are other verses that are included in the King James that are not included in the, the New International Version, right? which was uh, originally, most notably released in, in 1984, but then re-released in, in 2011 in a new translation. And, and those verses include Matthew 17, 21, 18, 11, and 23, 14. Uh, Mark 7, 16, 9, 44, and 46, 11, 26, and 15, 28. Luke 17, 36, John 5, verses 3 through 4. Acts 8, 37, and 15, 34, 24, 6 through 8, and 28, 29. Romans chapter 16, verse 24. And then again, like I mentioned, 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to the end of the chapter is one of those passages. There's another really famous passage. It's actually John chapter 7, verse 53 through the 11th chapter of, uh, the 11th verse of chapter 8. This beautiful story of a woman caught in adultery brought before uh, Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees to be executed because she's been caught in adultery. No, there's no, uh, they, if they caught her in adultery, that means that they necessarily chose not to bring the man or couldn't bring the man. And Jesus says, let he without sin cast the first stone. That text is also presented with this qualifier or in brackets or in italics or with footnotes because it's also not found in some of the ancient manuscripts of John's gospel. So the English Standard Version includes Mark 16, 9 through the end of the chapter and John 7, 53 through 8, 11 with these qualifiers. Here's why. Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19, gives us a clear warning that if anybody adds words onto the prophecies of this book or takes words away from the prophecies of this book, that the plagues described in this book will be added unto him. I believe that qualifier applies not only to the book of Revelation, but to the whole counsel of God. It applies to Revelation, and if it applies to Revelation, then it naturally would also follow that we would apply that same ethic to every other book that's inspired by God. But the book of Revelation is the final book that's been inspired by God. So it's under the, the fear and trembling of this warning that Bible translators include these passages with the qualifier that says there's a chance, there's a chance this was not in the original, this was not the, in the original text. 
And it is up to us and the conviction of the Spirit to apply them if we will. Right, I believe that John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is inspired. And I believe that Mark 16, 9 to the end of the chapter, should be included as canonical with the proper qualification. There are a few things in this passage, in this, this, this extended ending of the Gospel of Mark, that appear only in this text and nowhere else in Scripture. But the majority of the content does align with the rest of Scripture. That being said, you'll also find that this seeming addendum onto the end of the Gospel of Mark, insofar as it pertains to the ancient manuscripts, also serves as the textual basis for some of the most famous heretical practices in all of the church. Look at verse 9. Some of the new information that we see here is that there were seven demons cast out of Mary Magdalene. That appears only in this passage and nowhere else. You'll also see in verse 14 that Jesus rebuked the disciples for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. That appears only in this passage. Also, verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That and is baptized teaching, that's, this is the only verse in all of Scripture where that teaching appears. Then verse 18 does describe picking up serpents with their hands. This is where churches where the, the preacher handles a venomous snake while preaching. This is where that comes from. It comes from Mark 16, 18. Aren't you glad we don't do that at Highlands Community Church, <laughs> right? Aren't you glad I'm on camera right now, by the way? As you can probably tell, I've got a cold, which is probably just as dangerous as a venomous snake to some of you. We do see in the book of Acts, verse 28, verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 5, Paul the apostle bitten by a snake and throw it away into the fire and not die, even though the locals are watching him to see what happens. And when he doesn't die, they just conclude that he's a god. I believe this could be pointing forward in prophetic history to the events of Acts, talking about Paul. And then, the final portion, they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. We don't see anybody actually laying hands on people to heal them per se, the way we understand it today in the book of Acts, but we do see healings take place in the book of Acts. It is the middle portion, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. This is also new information that's found only in this passage and nowhere else in Scripture, and it's, it makes it somewhat inconsistent with the other Gospels. I'm sure that somewhere along the way in redemptive history, this has happened, Right? I mean, we've seen John, the author of the Gospel of John, for example, was sentenced to death but survived somehow. Uh, look at the, the very final words. This is the last piece of this portion of text that is, that is uh, not found anywhere else in Scripture. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This is one of those passages that gives me pause because Jesus has repeatedly told us, beware the generation that demands signs and wonders. And so, it is with fear and trembling in the, in the ancient history of Bible translators, that, that first generation of Bible translators to preserve the text from aging, uh, aging parchment to, to, to get a new utensil every time they wrote the name of the Lord down, and then modern Bible translators whom I personally know in my previous work before I came to Highlands Community Church. I was at Lifeway, and we produced the Christian Standard Bible. Right? I was a part of the team that helped launch that, that Bible translation. I can personally attest to the fear and trembling that goes into producing a Bible translation. That is not a coveted role. That is a scary, scary job because of Revelation 22, 18 and 19. If you take words away from this book, if you add words to this book, it's bad news. And so what are we to do if Mark 16, 9 through the end of the chapter is inspired? 
if it is inspired, we ought not exclude it because of revelation, because of this pronounced curse upon anybody who takes away God's words. So it's included with this qualifier. This is not a reason to distrust your Bible. If anything, to me, it is actually further reason to trust Scripture. We have reason to possibly doubt that this is inspired and part of the original text. But in case it is, we present it to you qualified nonetheless. That is further reason to trust. Look at the lengths to which Bible translators have gone. Not interpreting the text for you the way that some perhaps like, perhaps like uh, paraphrase translations will do. Not pressing upon you whether or not you should believe, but presenting it in case it's inspired. So that they could, as Bible translators, sleep well that night knowing that they didn't take away something from the Word of God that could have been inspired. Let this be a lesson to us as well, that we are sometimes hesitant to fully accept Mark 16's ending as inspired, but everybody is quite ready to accept John 8 as inspired. These are the two passages that are included, included with brackets in the English Standard Version. And the John 8 is this beautiful story of Jesus delivering a woman who is about to be executed, being caught in adultery. And then Mark 16 is this ending to the Gospel of Mark that includes these teachings that have served as the basis for heretical teachings throughout church history. We're easily, we easily accept the John 8 one. We have a harder time accepting the Mark 16 one. I think that's because John 8 is just prettier. Let us rather... You know, let, let us rather consider if it's the inspired Word of God, we accept it based on that fact, that it is the inspired Word of God, not based on how pretty it is or what a nice story it makes or how good it makes us feel. But we will measure it rather on whether or not it is inspired. All right. Now, with that explanation for the ending of the Gospel of Mark, all right, please read it with that qualifier. There's a chance that it's inspired, and if so, we should accept it. Let's go back and let's look at Pilate. Let's go back and let's look at Mark chapter 15. Each of our bumper videos is opened up with this question, is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he Lord? Who is this Jesus? Here's Pilate's response. Mark chapter 15, verse one. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Why was Pilate amazed? Because he didn't believe that Jesus had done anything wrong. He believed that Jesus was innocent. And in, in a, a classic tradition of husbands, he wasn't listening to his wife who had received this vision from God that Jesus was innocent. He wasn't listening to her. So he violates his conscience by proclaiming that he doesn't believe that he, he doesn't believe that Jesus has done anything wrong and then sentencing Jesus over to be flogged. Why would you proclaim a man innocent and then have him flogged? Why would you proclaim a man innocent and then hand him over unto crucifixion? John's gospel gives us some further insight. If we go over to John's gospel, all right, and John chapter 18 beginning in verse 28 it tells us a little bit more of the dialogue between Pilate and Jesus. It's fascinating. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. Jesus has been handed over uh, to, to multiple people throughout this sham of a trial. From Annas, who is a brutal, brutal high priest. We've seen him before. I mean, this guy, this guy was, was 
notorious for just having people beaten right there in, in, in front of him in the book of Acts and doing nothing about it. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, this is the guy who accidentally prophesied that, that uh, Jesus might be Lord. And then he goes to Pilate, who then sends him to Herod, not the Herod that was there when Jesus was born, and then he comes back to Pilate. Okay, so that's Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. I mean, Jesus has been just bounced around from heretic to heretic, all of them thinking they have authority over him, none of them actually sitting on the eternal throne. Imagine it from Jesus' perspective. Failed to do so because, you know, we were born with a sinful nature, but aspire nonetheless because you'll see mercy when you do. Jesus allowing himself to be subjected to this charade, willingly allowing himself to stay at the mercy of sinners and sinners and sinners and cowards and cowards and cowards. And all the while having at his disposal legions of angels, he could dispatch upon all of them to end the whole thing right then and there, but choosing to allow it to play on nonetheless. Back to John 18, 28. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Ceremonially, they would be unclean if they entered a Gentile's house. These Jewish leaders hated the Gentiles that they were using. They couldn't stand Caesar, but they're going to act like they respect Caesar's throne. They can't stand Pilate, but they're going to try to use his method of crucifixion. Verse 20, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die, being lifted up, as in the man who was nailed to a cross, and that cross is lifted up. All of this is to fulfill an ancient prophecy, prophesied long before crucifixion was even invented. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? I believe this question was authentic. Some have interpreted Pilate's tone as sarcastic. I believe it was genuine. What is truth? I believe that Pilate's question is the anthem of our era. What is truth? People are flailing for an authoritative source of truth. And it's rendered us incapable of answering basic questions. And now in the interest of appearing virtuous, we will ascribe to insane things that none of us believed just a few years ago. We will pretend like the question of gender is somehow unsolvable because we have no authoritative sense of truth. We will pretend like we don't know what is right, we don't know what is wrong because we have abandoned truth. Once you remove the foundation of truth, there is nothing to stop a culture's free fall into depravity, except perhaps for 
an outpouring of God's wrath, or what I propose, revival. I see signs of both happening simultaneously as I look out upon our culture, and I see a striking resemblance to Pilate and his question, what is truth? Did you come to Highlands Community Church today looking for what truth is? You found it. The truth is a person. I'm so struck by the irony. Pilate thinks that Jesus is standing in judgment before him. Jesus' statement that his kingdom is way beyond this world proves that it's actually Pilate standing in judgment before Jesus. So when asked this question, who is this Jesus? Remember that it is not you who sits in the judge's seat when you answer that question. Jesus has not been brought before you for you to determine who he is. He is Lord. Rather, the question is pressed to you that you would abide by the Spirit's drawing on your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead after the crucifixion that takes place hours after this conversation and, and, uh, with Pilate and be saved as you believe. Pilate then goes on to exchange further with the Jews in chapter 19. He says, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Remember that. In John 19, 6, Pilate openly confessed that he finds no guilt in Jesus. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Look at what has happened. Look at everything that follows. When Pilate asks the question, what is truth? He then lacks the backbone to stand up to the murderous horde that is caving in on him. And he violates his conscience, succumbing to peer pressure. He has openly admitted that Jesus is innocent and then handed Jesus over to be flogged. Openly confesses they believe Jesus is innocent and now allows Jesus to be crucified. That's why he is afraid. Look at this Frankenstein monster that Pilate has released because of his complicity, because of his fear, because of his desire to be accepted by the crowd. Hello, are you succumbing to the pressure of the crowd and denying Jesus? Learn from Pilate's example, my friend. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Who, uh, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It's the only good news Pilate has heard all day and it's not that good. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar's. So hypocritical, because they weren't friends of Caesar's either. They just wanted Jesus to be crucified. All of this, by the way, plays perfectly into prophetic history. All of this is a fulfillment of precisely the way that Jesus would, uh, precisely the way that Jesus always knew he would die. The banner over the legacy of Pontius Pilate will always be wanting to satisfy the crowd he handed Jesus over. What a shameful, horrific legacy from a guy who seems like a pretty nice guy. And that may be the problem. So he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. He's amazed. Let's go back to Mark 15. Go back to verse 6. With that background information with John in mind, look at the exchange. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison uh, who had committed murder and insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. 
And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Look at this guy. He believes that Jesus is innocent. He believes that the chief priests are just acting out of envy. Yet he is fully willing and he's about to have the innocent man flogged and crucified and the guilty man set free. See what happens when you have no sense of truth? You have no authoritative basis for truth? You end up succumbing to whatever society pressures you to do. If you see your reflection in Pilate, let the Spirit convict you, my friend. I don't wish pain upon you, but I want you to know what good news it is that it's painful for you to see yourself reflected in Pilate. You're like, that's me. I just believe whatever they tell me to believe. I just go along with the crowd. Whatever they say is virtuous, that's what I think is virtuous. I didn't believe it two weeks ago, but now here I am chanting it at the top of my lungs. I want to impress the crowd, but here's what you're going to see. You're going to learn along with Pilate that the crowd is insatiable. And once you do this for the crowd, they will demand these. And once you do those for the crowd, they'll call for your head. Don't be like Pilate. Don't try to succumb to the crowd. He asks if, the, if, if he should release to them the king of the Jews. He perceived that it was out of envy that they, they'd even delivered Jesus up. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. That's a non-answer, isn't it? They didn't answer his question. They just wanted to murder him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, there it is, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. He set Barabbas, the guilty man, free and had Jesus, the innocent man, crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, the color of royalty. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Mocking him. Mocking him, king of the Jews. In John's gospel, there's even some debate. Pilate has Jesus given this title, the king of the Jews, in multiple languages placed over him. And the Jews even contest that, saying, no, 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 don't call him king of the Jews. Say that he called himself king of the Jews. And Pilate just says, look, what I've written, I've written. You can tell he's just fed up. He's disgusted with himself and the whole process. He's not going to sleep well that night. Because he has been given the chance face to face with Jesus. Thinking that he is an authority over Jesus, but ultimately knowing that Jesus is an authority over him. He is filled with a sense of dread because he had the opportunity. He had the opportunity and it passed by. This is your opportunity. Who is this Jesus? If you've been with us any number of weeks or even just this one week, you are presented with a similar moment, an encounter with Jesus. All right, remember where the tables actually have been turned here. You are not an authority over Jesus. Rather, you are pressed this question because Jesus is an authority over you. The irony of their proclamation of Jesus as King of the Jews, the irony of them mocking him, is that one day every eye will see, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow because Jesus is Lord. Revelation 19 gives us this beautiful description 
this terrifying description of Jesus. Revelation 19.16, it's revealed that he is, in fact, king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus rode in on the foal of a donkey to be crucified, but in Revelation 19, he rides in on a white war horse to conquer and to slay evil forevermore. John sees heaven open up and there before him is a rider on a white horse whose name is faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. He wears a robe that is dipped in blood and riding behind him are the armies of heaven dressed in white linen, fine and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sword with which to strike down the nations and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On him is written this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is Jesus. Though he was like a lamb silent before his shearers as Pilate judged him. Now in Revelation 19 at last, the revelation, see the way, the revealing, if you will, of Jesus shows him for exactly who he is, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of the Jews indeed, but not only of Jews, of every nation that has ever existed and ever will exist in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He is the King. He is the Lord. Let this proclamation, let this confession come from your mouth now on this side of judgment and not the other. Christian, have you found yourself acting like Pilate, pretending not to know what the truth is? Would you repent of that today? Would you confess that today? And my skeptical friend, if you see your reflection in Pilate, not quite sure what the truth is, finding yourself succumbing likewise to the the ever-fluctuating demands of a whimsical crowd whose intent is simply murder, would you confess today the truth of Jesus? Place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Believe in him and so be saved. Somebody's going to come up and lead us in a prayer, proclaiming Jesus is Lord, professing our full belief in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and so is saved. Would you not commit the error of Pilate? Would you recognize truth as he Truth, personified with a capital T, stands right before you. Do not try to satisfy the insatiable crowd. Rather, defy the crowd. Believe in Jesus because he is indeed king of kings and lord of lords.